our American stories. The first state to recognize Christmas as a holiday was Louisiana in 1837. By 1860, only 13 states recognized Christmas as a legal holiday. Five years later, by 1865, that number had gone from 13 to 31. What happened? The Civil War happened. The nostalgic yearning for Christmas at home during the war happened. What also happened were the little gestures that occurred on the battlefield during unofficial Christmas truces between the blue and the gray. So after the war, one of the ways President Lincoln saw to reconcile the nation was through Christmas. In 1870, Christmas was made a national holiday. Let's now take a look and see what's under the hood of this story. Sleigh bells ring, are you listening? Ah, Christmas. Up goes the tree, on go the lights. An exciting season of presents and parties only a Scrooge could hate. But where did all the traditions start? Why do we bring huge evergreen trees into our homes? How did Santa get the red suit, the sleigh, and the eight reindeer? And what about Rudolph? Today we are going to pull back the curtain to unveil the hidden history of our cherished Christmas holiday. These days, cities and towns seem to be dressing up earlier and earlier for the Christmas season. There are Santas at every shopping mall from coast to coast. And there are lights, lots and lots of lights. We liked lights. As little kids, I think we all jumped in the family car and drove through different neighborhoods to see the lights. The first Christmas lights were invented in 1882 by Edison Company Vice President Edward Johnson. Later, General Electric offered a string of 24 bulbs for $12, which is equal to $280 today. This bright idea is often credited to a New England telephone worker. The real inspiration came from his job where he worked for the telephone company, and it was, you know, the little light bulbs in the early telephone switchboards. That gave him the idea for what we now know as Christmas lights. What child is the Christmas story is one we all know. After a rude refusal by a local innkeeper, Mary and Joseph bedded down in a barn in Bethlehem, where they gave birth to a son, the Son of God. Those are the biblical origins of Christmas. But centuries before Jesus walked the earth, early Europeans were celebrating light and birth in the darkest days of winter. Every December on the shortest day in the year, when the earth was tilted furthest from the sun, came the winter solstice. It marked the darkest day of the year, but also the time when the promise of longer days gave cause to celebrate. To honor the occasion, ancient Norse tribes held a 12-day festival they called Yule. You have the crops brought in, you have the meat being slaughtered, you slaughter some of the farm animals because you can't feed them during the dark days of winter. So there's a lot of meat on hand, the beer has been made, it's perfect time for a feast. Fathers and sons dragged home the biggest log they could find and set it on fire. This Yule log burned for all 12 days of the feast and they brought evergreens, furs, and holly into their homes. Over the centuries, the concept grew, 
and later it was co-opted into our modern Christmas tree custom. Today, picking out a tree is a family tradition. And in any given year, American farmers are growing 350 million trees on 15,000 Christmas tree farms. That's one Christmas tree for every man, woman, and child in the country. Here's Nigel Manley, director of the Roxas State Christmas Tree Farm in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. The biggest thing that I've heard from customers is, particularly with the balsam fir, when you open the door when you come home from work, you can smell that tree in the house. And that scent is what makes Christmas for them. That's the biggest thing for the Christmas trees. So what does any of this have to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago? After all, that is where the story of Christmas all begins. But how do we know what we know about the birth of Jesus? We actually have two different sources from the New Testament for the Nativity. We have the Gospel of Matthew and we have the Gospel of Luke. They don't refer to one another, they may not even have known about each other, and they tell us two different sets of things about what happened for Jesus' birth. And what we tend to do is we put these two stories together to get a kind of full picture that we call the Nativity. Matthew's Gospel gives us the Star of Bethlehem and the Wise Men. And no, contrary to popular belief, there were not three of the wise men. The Bible only mentions that they brought three gifts for the baby Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the exact number of wise men is not included in the scriptures. There's a kind of symbolic value to these gifts. What they're doing is they're bringing really, really precious goods to honor this child with a very humble birth. And there's a, a message there about how we need to recognize this birth isn't really humble at all because this is a king being born. This is the first example of Christmas gift giving. But nowhere in the New Testament is it recorded when this birth actually happened. One of the few things that all scholars seem to agree on is that Jesus wasn't born in the wintertime. Now I know that's a terrible thing to say, but let me explain. The early followers of Jesus Christ weren't concerned with marking his birthday, partially because they expected his imminent return. So why bother creating a birthday? But this didn't prevent early Christian scholars and present-day historians from trying to speculate when he was born. The one thing you will get from their estimates on Christ's birth is that they all occur in the springtime. And that makes a great deal of sense, because one of the few details you'll find in the Gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ is that it was at a time when the shepherds were with their flocks in the fields. That could not have been in December, because what we do know about the traditions of ancient Judea is that at that time shepherds took their flocks indoors so they wouldn't get cold at night, starting in November, and they wouldn't bring them back out again until March. So how did Jesus end up with a birthday on December 25th? Long before Jesus was born, the Romans celebrated many pagan holidays, particularly in December, and these end-of-year festivities set the stage for our modern Christmas holiday. This is Our American Stories. More on how Christmas came to be as an American celebration and our national holiday after these messages.
is our American Stories. And we're answering the question, why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Let's pick up where we left off. One Roman holiday was Saturnalia, which began on December 17th and was a series of parties that would last anywhere from three to five or maybe seven days. And you can think of it as sort of a, a big office party, but in togas. And only three laws governed Romans during the holiday. Number one, all businesses should be closed except bakeries, cookeries, and those that tend to sport and solace and delight. Number two, anger, resentment, and threats are strictly forbidden. Number three, no discourse shall either be composed or delivered except it be witty and lusty, conducing to mirth and jollity. The second party is New Year's. It was a five-day party, and it was quite enjoyable as well. And then in between Saturnalia and New Year's, there was already a birthday celebration for a Roman-related god on December 25th. That god, Mithras, was born and honored on December 25th. After Christianity became Rome's official religion in the 4th century, Leaders chose to absorb pagan traditions rather than outlaw them. But in a prelude to those who complain today about what a shame it is that we don't celebrate Christmas the way they used to. That Christmas has been commercialized. Well, 16 centuries ago, Archbishop Gregory of Constantinople urged that the Christmas celebration be conducted after a heavenly and not an earthly manner and he warned his congregants against feasting to excess, dancing, and crowning the doors. But as the church continued to absorb various ancient traditions, what emerged were two experiences of Christmas, one sacred and one secular. Each of these Christmases also had their own separate music, just like we have today. You have hymns in the church, they're sacred music, and they're sung in Latin. And you find gradually the development in the 12th century of Christmas carols. And Christmas carols are sung in the vernacular. They're not in Latin, they're languages everybody knows. And people enjoy these songs, and people sing them together. And very quickly there gets to be the tradition of not singing these songs in church. But medieval caroling was not just about caroling. It was about drinking. At every door, revelers begged for a gulp from the household punch bowl, getting drunker with every note they sang. So what Christmas looks like doesn't look an awful lot like a sort of solemn, biblically-oriented holiday. It looks like something else. It looks like it's always looked, frankly. It's this kind of festival of celebration and revelry. All of this celebration and merriment didn't sit well especially after the Protestant Reformation. One of the hallmarks of Martin Luther's message was to clear away from the entire church calendar all the feasts and saints' days. And Christmas was one of the many feast days in the Catholic Church, and Luther tried to get rid of almost all of them. But there were just too many people who enjoyed St. Nick's December 6th feast day. Besides feasting, this day also involved gift-giving. So what Martin Luther suggested was this. Instead of telling kids about St. Nicholas bringing gifts, they would tell the kids that the gifts were brought by the Christ child himself. 
How do you say Christ child in Luther's German language? Christ Kindle. That's right, Christ Kindle. Well, Luther's attempts failed, but Christ Kindle got swallowed up by Christmas and got transformed into Chris Kringle. Yet another endearing name for the big man in the red suit. So why did Luther declare a war on Christmas? He did because it wasn't mentioned in the Bible. One of the messages of the Reformation was go back to the Bible. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Part of the logic behind that argument was expressed by an American Puritan of a later generation. Ezra Stiles, who was one of the first presidents of Yale College, who said this, Had it been the will of Christ that the anniversary of his nativity should have been celebrated, he would have at least let us know the day. By the 17th century, Christian reformers were losing patience with the rowdier Christmas traditions. They decided to ban Christmas altogether. There's a kind of backlash against Christmas. Among Protestant groups, you find a desire to not celebrate Christmas, a repudiation of Christmas as kind of a Catholic invention, frankly, something that the Catholic Church had allowed happen. In 1652, England banned Christmas. Ministers who preached about the Nativity on Christmas Day could be imprisoned. Churches risked fines if they tried to decorate their buildings. The law said that shops must stay open on Christmas as if it were any other business day. Now this was the law, but nobody said it was popular. Although people believed the Puritans had a lot of religious substance on their side, they enjoyed Christmas. But Christmas would have an equally hard time in New England during the early 17th century. Pious settlers from England looked upon Christmas with suspicion. The newly formed Puritan colony of Massachusetts wanted no part of the holiday. And in 1659, it banned Christmas too. The Puritans of New England were very well aware of the pagan associations with the celebrations of the winter solstice, and they wished to avoid any kind of association with that. One Puritan commentator said that Christmas was chastity's shipwreck. And another one in Boston said that men did more dishonor to Christ on the 12 days of Christmas than they did the entire 12 months of the year. During the Revolutionary War, America had still not yet embraced Christmas, which in one instance was a blessing. One of the key and most inspiring battles of the Revolution was the Battle of Trenton. This battle has been immortalized in the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware River as he boldly stands at the front of the boat next to an American flag. Washington made that crossing on Christmas of 1776. One of the primary reasons that the Americans were able to prevail was because they surprised the Hessians, the German mercenaries who worked for the British, and the British at Trenton, New Jersey. Because they were all drunk, they had been celebrating Christmas, but the Americans did not. As the American colonies spread down throughout the southern coast, the settlers were less enthusiastic about banning Christmas because a great many of them were Catholic immigrants. And once Protestants got exposed to Christmas, they found it very attractive. By the mid-1700s, they had adopted many of their European Christmas traditions, keeping the rowdy Christmas behavior of the past alive. 
Early Republic records are full of instances where people in, you know, a gentleman's home in Virginia, they're having a nice Christmas dinner when the local rowdies get word of it and pound on the door and they go through this very ancient ritual of give us some food and drink or we're going to throw rocks through your windows. And so there's both those traditions are, are still there. But as America matured, so did its Christmas customs. Respectable middle-class Americans wanted to take the rowdy Christmas, the public Christmas that took place outdoors, and move it indoors. I mean, these are people who had property. They were afraid of destruction. They were afraid of losing things that they owned. So they want to take this public rowdy event and take it from the streets and bring it into the home and make the focus of Christmas around the family, around this private gathering that takes place in the house. This effort was most deliberate and most successful in rapidly expanding New York City. The city that never sleeps has shaped the modern secular Christmas more than any other city in the world. And it's really because of the efforts of two very gifted New Yorkers who lived there in the 1800s. They would reinvent old world Christmas customs to create our modern American holiday and they would mold our image of jolly old St. Nick. New York in the 1800s was a city that was alive with change. The population was booming. There was new industry. There were the new stores that were growing up that provided the foundation for what became the commercialization of Christmas. But it was not only a city that was alive with change, it was also a city that was alive with new ideas. Clement Clark Moore a New York professor of Oriental and Greek literature who helped create New York's Chelsea neighborhood and design St. Peter's Episcopal Church had an idea that would change Christmas forever. In 1822, he wrote a 56-line poem he called A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known today as The Night Before Christmas. Almost single-handedly, he created the modern American version of Christmas. And when we come back, more on the story of Christmas in America and how it came to be. This is Our American Stories. For all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Our American Stories, and by the way, that great keyboard playing, there's a whole story to that keyboard playing in Charlie Brown's Christmas, and our annual Charlie Brown Christmas story will play, as it always does during the Christmas season, several times. But back to the story of Christmas and how it came to be here in America, we ended our last segment hearing about how a New York intellectual named Clement Clark Moore wrote The Night Before Christmas a poem that would forever enshrine the characteristics of Santa Claus. Let's pick it up from there. What's really interesting about Moore's poem is it distilled various traditions in the early 19th century. 
and put them all together and added his own, Moore's own imaginings. Moore's poem becomes a path-breaking moment, a watershed, in how Christmas is celebrated. Moore's subject was Santa, as we know him today. His inspiration? Two legendary Christmas figures of the old world. One was Saint Nicholas, a 4th century bishop renowned for gift-giving, legendary for leaving presents in stockings. The other was Sinterklaas, the Dutch version of Saint Nicholas. Sinterklaas had merged a bit with Odin, the Norse pagan god of Yule, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse. Before the mid-19th century, Santa Claus comes in different shapes and sizes. He arrives, you know, on a boat, on a horse, uh, on a sleigh, and all of that sort of codified and narrowed down in America, largely in New York City. Both old world legends were rich in details, many of which Moore chose to leave out. One omission was a bizarre, dark, devil-like sidekick of St. Nicholas named Krampus, or Black Peter. And Krampus brought a switch to punish naughty children, or worse. They had horns, long red tongue, covered with fur, tail, and hoof. And he would come into the room right after St. Nicholas. And one scene in particular shows two little boys cowering because outside the door is this devil figure, Krampus. But Clement Clark Moore St. Nick embodied only good. Moore introduced several new characteristics for Santa. He dressed him in American fur, gave him a pipe, a huge belt, and portrayed him not as a priest, but a jolly dimpled elf with a twinkle in his eye. On his back he toted a sack full of toys for the children of the house. Moore also gave him a sleigh that he flew through the sky, led not by a horse, but by eight reindeer. But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. <laughs> Each with its own name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Dunder, and Blitzen. Moore's poem, which has become the most famous poem in the English language, enthralled 19th century Americans. It created a new kind of Christmas, neither rowdy nor religious, but centered on home and family. In the decades that followed, artists would expand on Moore's imagery, but his would be the vision that would endure. One interesting thing about the poem is that book editors actually changed the last line. In Moore's original version, it was, Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Most books change happy to merry. As iconic as Clement Clark Moore's Santa was, he still wasn't the fully formed Kris Kringle we know today. His Santa had no North Pole workshop, no elves, no letters from kids, and no naughty and nice list. Where did these details come from? The credit goes to another New Yorker, illustrator Thomas Nast. He took Moore's Santa and produced the definitive version for generations to come. Thomas Nast is one of the great illustrators of the 19th century. A lot of the images that we see today, he created. When you think about you know, the donkey and the elephant for the Democratic and Republican Party, he created that. The image of Uncle Sam 
that we've all come to know is a creation of Thomas Nast. And he also is the person who gave us our modern version of Santa Claus. In 1862, one of America's major magazines, Harper's Weekly, commissioned Nast to draw its Christmas illustrations. He transformed the Moore's jolly old elf into someone taller and grander. So he becomes your grandfather. Gives him the full flowing white beard, which is the image of a wealthy person in, in the Victorian uh, world. Um, he was wearing a red coat with white trim, black boots, the buckled belt, the pipe. Nass' image of Santa became indelible. And with every Christmas grew richer in its detail. Santa, one could say, has become America's national saint. Nass does this year after year. He creates lots of the things we associate with Santa Claus. The list of naughty and nice, living at the North Pole, and that becomes the image of Santa Claus. And by the mid-19th century, the Christmas tree, a variation of the ancient Norse custom, became the centerpiece to the family-oriented American Christmas, all because of one picture. On December 23, 1848, the London News published an image of the young Queen Victoria and Prince Albert with their family assembled around a Christmas tree, part of Albert's German tradition. England fell in love with it immediately. Two years later, this same image of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert was republished in a very popular American magazine with a couple of alterations. They took out Queen Victoria's crown and took off Prince Albert's mustache so that they looked a little bit more American. And it was a way of sort of essentially telling middle-class Americans who bought this magazine that this would be a tradition, this is a tradition worthy of your home. The Christmas tree had officially arrived in America. By 1856, President Franklin Pierce was putting one in the White House. In 1939, copywriter Robert L. May was creating a whole new holiday icon, a red-nosed reindeer named Rudolph. The Rudolph figure is created for Montgomery Ward Department Store in Chicago. And they want to have essentially kind of a handout, a Christmas favor, if you will. So he writes a 38-page pamphlet in verse about this woebegone reindeer. Originally calls him Rolo the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Towards the end, they decide they need something a little more punch, so it becomes Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's a huge hit. Ten years later, in 1949, May's brother-in-law, songwriter Johnny Marks, set the Rudolph poem to music. He wrote the song and gave it to Gene Autry, and Gene Autry didn't like it. He didn't even want to record it. And Gene Autry's wife said, no, this is a good song. You need to record it. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Autry finally agreed to record the song, but only as a B-side to one of his records. It became the biggest hit of Autry's career. All of the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. They never And this is our American Rudolph stories. And by the way, that's why you listen to your wife. Gene Autry listened to his wife. Smart man. And by the way, imagine 
Rollo the red-nosed reindeer. What a mistake. When we come back, chock full of information. That's what we are here on this show. Answers to your questions. I know I'm learning a lot. Thanks, Hangler, for putting this together. Greg, as always, does a great job on these pieces. One last segment about all the things you didn't know about Christmas and how Christmas as we know it and celebrate it came to be. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, our hour special broadcast on how Christmas came to be in this country. And I've learned a lot, and I know you have too, and now it's time to close out the hour, the final chapter in this story. Another classic Christmas song from around the same time was written by a Jewish immigrant from Russia, Irving Berlin, and sung by Bing Crosby. This Christmas song is the most beloved and celebrated song ever written. It's a song that was heard for the very first time on Christmas 1941, just 18 days after Pearl Harbor was bombed. The song is White Christmas. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones I used. So the song doesn't really catch on. It's the spring of 1942. We've just gone to war. But it catches on in the fall of 42, which is when America is really approaching its one-year mark of being at war. And these now hundreds of thousands, soon to be millions of GIs, are going to be spending their first Christmas away from home. And that's where that song has that real heartstring-pulling, nostalgic feel to it, that the record sales just skyrocket in October, November, December of uh, 1942. White Christmas is the most successful single ever released, and it has been for more than 60 years. According to the Guinness World Records, the version sung by Bing Crosby is the best-selling single of all time, with estimated sales in excess of 100 million copies worldwide. The homespun values at the heart of White Christmas were what Americans at home and those fighting abroad longed for. In 1946, Americans found those values in the reigning classic of all Christmas-themed movies, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life started life uh, as a short story called The Greatest Gift by uh, Philip Van Doren Stern. And it wound up in the hands of Frank Capra, who had just come back from World War II, uh, where he had shot the Why We Fight series of, of propaganda films for the U.S. Army. The Oscar-winning director crafted a sentimental masterpiece about a man named George Bailey, a man who sees the world as it would be had he never been born. Mother, what do you want? Mother, this, this is George. I, I thought sure you'd remember me. 
The impact this movie has had on the movie industry can be seen in every Steven Spielberg film. For inspiration, Spielberg has said that he watches It's a Wonderful Life before starting any new film. And whenever he goes on location for a new film, he takes along a copy of It's a Wonderful Life to show his cast how movies should be made. And it also must be said, the kiss between Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed is hands down the greatest kiss in movie-making history. Now you listen to me. I don't want any plastics, I don't want any ground floors, and I don't want to get married ever to anyone. You understand that? I want to do what I want to do. And you're... And you're... George, George, George. The broadcast success of It's a Wonderful Life proved that Christmas and television were a powerful combination. By the 1960s, baby boomers were enjoying a golden age of holiday TV. There was a golden age of Christmas specials that began about in the mid-60s and went into the mid-70s. These specials were aimed specifically at children, although were sophisticated enough to entertain the adults that were in the room. After Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol in 1962 came a flurry of animated specials, but in 1965, one Christmas special featuring a little round-headed kid seeking the true meaning of Christmas topped them all. Here's Lee Mendelson, the executive producer for A Charlie Brown Christmas. In 1965, we got a call from the McCann Erickson advertising agency who represented Coca-Cola. They said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied and said, absolutely. So I called uh, Sparky, our nickname for Mr. Schultz, and said, um, I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's something you're going to write tomorrow. Mendelssohn and animator Bill Melendez had to create an animated special in just six months. They made radical creative choices, like using child actors for the voices. Here's Peter Robbins, the voice of Charlie Brown. I was nine years old. They were eight years old, seven years old. We're all in one recording studio, bouncing off the walls, playing with the drums and stuff, because it was a recording studio where, like, the Doors recorded their albums. The work progressed, but time was running out. We did end up finishing it just like a week before it went on the air. Then we took it to CBS, and the three fellows there didn't like it at all, and they said, we're going to have to run it because it's scheduled for four days from now, but, you know, nice try, but it, it just doesn't work. So as we went through these minefields, it's amazing it ever even got on the air. One issue that concerned everyone was Schultz's insistence that the show quote the Bible. One of us said, you know, do you really think we can, you know, animate a kid reading from the Bible? Do you think we can get, get this through? And I remember he said at the time, well, if we don't do it, who will? Who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. Bill staged it in a very, very simple format. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And the way that wonderful actor, Chris Shea, read it, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, 
goodwill toward men. It became, you know, one of the really indelible moments, probably in animated history. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Then, in 1983, author and humorist Gene Shepard immortalized his childhood in an autobiographical account of One Boy's Christmas. Here's screenwriter of The Christmas Story and the voice of Ralphie as an adult, Gene Shepard, telling us about his real-life childhood encounter with Santa that inspired the most memorable scene in the movie. You know, I'd been thinking for weeks what I wanted for Christmas. I figured the best thing to do is to tell Santa Claus about that. And I looked up at that Santa Claus, and he had these big, watery blue eyes and a huge beard and all, and he's looking me right in the eye. And he was so impressive that my mind went blank. Ho, 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 then what's your name, little boy? It's like if all of a sudden you're, you're sitting on the president's lap, and he says, what would you like me to pass in legislation, Sonny? I mean, your mind's going to go blank. You can't remember any of this stuff. And so at that point, Santa Claus looked at me and he says, All right, <laughs> how about a football, kid? How about a nice uh, football? Hey, football. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> so he pushed me off his lap and this elf grabbed me and threw me down a slide that went down into the snow. And I laid there for a minute and I knew that I was not a fit person to talk to the great. Santa Claus was obviously a star. These days, the glow from our holiday lights and television sets help banish the cold, dark winter nights the way the Yule logs and bonfires once did a thousand years ago. People make up holidays. Traditions are invented. But there are uses for those cultural tropes that stay with us for centuries. There's something about the deeper meaning there that is singing to our bones and we hear it and we think, yes, that's the tradition and that's what I want to celebrate. For as long as we can remember, we bring in our greens and turn on the lights. We hang our stockings and sing our carols in church and in the streets amidst the chaos. We even find time to rejoice at the birth of a child 2,000 years ago. Something touches American somewhere down deep in his belly button about Christmas. He can't really explain what it is about Christmas that he enjoys so much. <laughs> he just knows that when all those red and green lights go up, you know, on the street, and you see Santa Clauses walking around with their bells, that something happens to you. You enjoy it. Now, you can be cynical all you want, but you still enjoy it. From our family at Our American Stories, we'd like to say to you and yours, Merry Christmas to you all, and to all, a good night. And this is Our American Stories, and again, that's all Greg Hengler and all the folks he works with putting these great pieces together. And by the way, one thing that really struck me through the piece, and I'm sure you had your favorite, but Irving Berlin was a Jewish man and he was from Russia. And this one man gave us two great American standards. A Russian wrote God Bless America, and a Jew wrote White Christmas. And this truly 
is the most American thing about America. That I could say a sentence like that. We can only say something like that in this great country. And so we talk about Christmas. We talk about America here on Our American Stories. Have a blessed Christmas. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine. My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. Must have been around 10 o'clock, we got in. I remember walking down and leaving the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. It was just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. And I, I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine Band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out and Half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking when, geez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down at that concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and, and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out, and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us, you know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on. He had a starch khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and campaign ribbons on his chest. Shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were. We were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war. We needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know. And we get on the bus, the bus is packed. The bus is full of people. And we get on the bus and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, chest, chest to back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turned, gave us an about face. So now that we're all in this line in the aisle, 
facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat, just tightly linked together, and the bus was full. And now the last plane had come in, and we just, we went. We were going, in my opinion, we were going to Marine Corps Theater. But I was more of a smart aleck that night. That would quickly be taken care of the next night. So we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night. We pull up outside the receiving barracks. And outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front and was black as night on the bus. You couldn't barely, you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes and his voice just came out and filled that bus. Now, when I tell you to, you will get off my bus and you will get on a yellow footprint. Do you understand? Yes, sir! He told us, you maggots got 20 seconds to get off of this bus and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds. And then he yelled, move Boy, we just getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats, and he's up there screaming and yelling, and there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling, and sure enough, when he got to 20 seconds, he just started kicking him in the butt and getting him off that bus. We scrambled outside. We got under the yellow footprints. We stood there at attention. They were three guys, and they were just, these DIs were just moving up and down each line of the rows looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single-file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp. And if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off. Anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing, we've got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And the DI tells us, here men, have, you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hallow property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower, you got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off, get dressed, and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room. We jumped into the showers and the spray. And to help us along, because we had some people who not only were slow, they were, some of them really actually were very stupid, he decided to count down. So we're scrubbing in the steam room going, I hear this voice go, 48, 47, 46, move, 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 damn it, move. 45, 44, 43. I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36. And we're busting our butts to get out of that shower. And we were half dry, half all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room. 
through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving. Out on that floor to get out there in the auditorium. And when we come back, more of this story. And what a storyteller, folks. And again, we just find ordinary Americans around the country. These aren't professional writers, screenwriters, script writers. They're you. They're me. They're the person next door. Bob McClellan, The McClellan Files, his story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off. Our uniform consisted of a one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top. And everything else was in the bucket. Got out there and lined up across the tables. I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball. I hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born. His pale skin indicated that all the blood in his body must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety, no doubt. His eyes were wide. You thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. He was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting, detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body, all of which the Marine Corps thoroughly intended to change. The DIs were walking up and down behind us, and now I I took things a little bit more seriously here now. I wasn't at the airport uh, shooting my mouth off. DIs told us to take everything that we brought with us, everything, and put it into the box. And into that box went all the pictures that I brought, pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything. My clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address at home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past. Contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago. But I knew now it didn't matter to anybody down here. None of that mattered. Not your past. You don't matter. All that matters is do what you're told. You're going to get a new life. 
the new life you're going to get down here is going to be one a purpose and you're going to have a purpose and you're going to learn to do it well and from that purpose you'll develop your values and your self-respect down here you'll learn to know who you are where you are and what you are here to do but right now that was a far far distance from where I stood that moment at the table all I wanted to do standing at that table was to get the box I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room get on my clothes and get the hell out of there I had three years of this ahead of me so DI told us to step back went up and down the table made sure everybody had done everything correctly and then standing up in the front he pointed to the single door at the end of the room and he yelled I'm gonna give you maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints Muff! And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding boom, 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 of the stampeding going down those stairs. Yeah, men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. They wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in and they'd isolate a weak recruit and they'd pull him off to the side. And they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him. And they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of his, the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging and their jaws would be opening, gnawing. And just knew that if you just got anywhere near close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continued to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We looked like blind men trying to flee a burning forest. Out the door onto the street, out onto the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley-looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark and the DI got up in front of us. And just to harass us, he'd come along and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands and tell you to pick it up off the deck. And then he said, because you people are so stupid, you don't know left from right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to count really slow. I want you to lock arms, four abreast, hold your gear, and march when I tell you to. Ready, forward, march. Left, right, left. He started yelling at us because we weren't in unison. Left, right, and then out of nowhere. People make me sick. You're nothing but a bunch of cows. You march like a bunch of cows. Get down on your cow faces. Get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push-ups. And dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground and tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could. So he started yelling, get up. Get up, damn it. Get on your feet. Get back into formation. Get your gear. Lock your arms. Ready. Forward. March. Left. I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. 
So we all started mooing and mooing, and Caden said all it was missing was the cowbell. And so this cow, herd of cows, started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor. Left, moo, right, left, across the base. And anybody that saw us, or anybody that heard us, they knew who we were. In the Marine Corps' eyes, we were the lowest form of life on Earth. There's none lower. None lower than that. And we marched across the base to our Quonset huts. At 0400, they put us to bed. Told us to lie at attention in our bunks. Until Reveille. I remember lying there at attention, listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence with Constantino wire on the top. The planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours. I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland. It'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. You think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men join the Marines. They, most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 04.45 in the morning, a 50-gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my Quonset hut, announcing Reveille. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk, that morning had now arrived thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille. And Reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's, he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday because, folks, like so many memories in our lives... The big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan Files. This one was called The Blast Furnace. What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him with stories to tell. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and with a story from one of our regular contributors and Texan, Tim Dunn. Tim's brought us some incredible stories from the Bible, Job, Daniel, and Abraham. But today he brings us his own story and the story of an industry that employs over 6.7 million Americans. Here's Tim. I remember the first time it dawned on me I might get drafted and sent to Vietnam when I was about 15. I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to be leaving home here before too long. Somewhere in there, I told my dad, you know, I might just stick around the house for a while and uh, kick back and kind of take it easy after I get out of high school. And my dad was a really, really easygoing guy. He was a real affable, gregarious guy, great salesman, always kind of a happy life of the party sort of a guy, never talked to me sternly. But in this particular instance, he looked over at me and he said, listen, don't get that idea. When you turn 18, you, you're out of here. You go get a job and you go get your own living. And if you go to college, if you decide to go to college, you can come back some, but that's it. You're out of here. And my, my life changed that day. I sort of changed my orientation. My, oh, okay. I got to get a job. By the way, many years later, that thought came back to me, and I realized, God, that's the right way to do it with kids. And I did the same thing with my boys. Listen, that's a fantastic thing to do for your sons. Boys don't become men until the safety net's pulled out. But he was he had my best interest at heart. That's why he said that. He knew it was good for me. But anyway, I, I didn't know what to do. And I was pretty good at chemistry. So I was talking about becoming an engineer. So a girl at, at our high school that I knew, her dad was the president of the local oil refinery. Now, in Big Spring, I think there was only one office building that had an elevator. And that was the Cosden building, the oil refinery building. So she got an appointment for me and a friend of mine that was also interested in being an engineer. And we went into his office and he interviewed us. And I remember going into that office, it seemed gigantic. This this thing seemed so huge and so posh in my memory. I'd love to go back and see what it really looked like. But he was talking on a speakerphone, which was like sci-fi kind of stuff back in those days. You know, I, I had a black rotary dial phone at home, and he had a speakerphone where you could actually talk without your hands. And we walked into his office, and he was saying something like, well, yeah, we got millions of barrels of oil out here. And I thought, he's playing Monopoly for a living. Now, my favorite thing to do growing up was to play Monopoly because I loved the idea of buying and selling and winning you know, making deals. The, when, when it came time to trade the property, that was my favorite part. He's playing Monopoly. And so he talked to us, and he was a chemical engineer. And he had worked his way up through Cosden Oil and Refining and become the president of Cosden. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do. So I had one data point. And when you have just one data point to extrapolate from, it's easy to make a projection, right? <laughs> so... It was my first and only taste, and I, had, I just didn't know better. I started my own business back in 1996 and basically been doing this for 22 years now as a Midland oil and gas producer. Along the way, I learned to love the oil business. The oil and gas business is such an enormous, incredible contributor to humanity. 
And it's basically lifted the entire world out of subsistence-level poverty into an industrial prosperity. You know, the oil business in the ancient days was the olive business. You would uh, raise olives, crush the olives, get the oil, and then you would use the very best oil, perhaps for cosmetics and for the virgin oil, for cosmetics and for maybe religious purposes. The next oil, perhaps you use for food and cooking and things like that. And then the worst oil, maybe you put in your lamps and you burn that in. And that's the oil business. And, and then, you know, many years later, kind of people figured out how to do whaling. You know, these, these whaling ventures would go out and they, they financed the whaling ventures much like we finance an oil and gas venture. The guys would sign on board and they'd get a fraction of the takings that they're going to get and they'd go out and whale and they'd get a whale and they'd cook the blubber on board and they'd put it in barrels and store it and then they'd come back to port and sell the whale oil and they used that for lamps. And then, of course, the whale population started to decline and these ships had to go further and further and it started getting harder. And along comes petroleum. And petroleum is much less expensive than whaling. So the petroleum business really saved the whales. And then there was this period where the oil for the lamps became very erratic. Like sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. Sometimes it would be real sooty, sometimes it wouldn't be sooty. And this fellow named Rockefeller came along and said, we need, we need a standard for the business, a standard where the oil's always clean and it burns purely. So he started the Standard Oil Company, which we now know today as Exxon. And all through this era, you know, the uses of oil are being developed. And of course, the original cars were powered by steam. And in order to create steam, you have to, you have to create heat. You have to heat water. And the water creates steam and the steam drives the engine. But the problem is usually the fuel like coal, for example, is really heavy. And so if you have to carry a real heavy thing to create the power, then you use up a ton of your power to propel the fuel. Well, along comes petroleum. Petroleum is a miracle fuel because it has such incredibly high energy density. Like you, you can put in a gas tank, which is not very big part of the car and doesn't weigh very much, enough energy to drive for four or five hundred miles. And that's unbelievable. You can't do that with coal. The coal trains had these giant cars full of coal because a big part of the weight that they had to carry was the coal. The reason why you can't drive around with a car that runs directly off the sun is because in order to have a solar panel big enough to convert enough sunlight to energy to run the car, the panel would be so huge that it would crush the car. And the same is true with wind. You, 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 it's, it's too dispersed, it's not concentrated. And so when you have wind and solar, you have to take that power and you have to concentrate it and put it in a battery. And batteries technology now has come a long, long way. And they're getting to the point where like you can store energy in a battery, like for your cell phone or for some electrical vehicles, but still a struggle to do it nearly as economically as you can do it with petroleum. Now that technology is developing, but it has quite a ways to go before you can do what you can do with petroleum. So what happens then, now you have this internal combustion engine and it's portable. 
So now you can move things around. Well, that means that you can, instead of having a horse connected to a plow, you can have a machine connected to the plow. Instead of being able to plow 40 acres in a day, you can plow several hundred acres in a day. And the machines keep getting more sophisticated. Now you get to the point where instead of whatever it was, 80, 90%, let's say, of the economy being agriculture, where we're trying to feed ourselves, uh, now it's just a few percent. A few percent of the population can feed all the rest of us because we have machines. It's like having a hundred servants for every person in America. And you've been listening to Tim Dunn, and what a storyteller he is. And favorite part of doing this show is that we've just come across people from all walks of life who are subject matter experts, and we just give them the microphone. They're not famous. They don't storytell for a living. They've got lives. And so often, they're the ones with the most interesting stories to tell. And my goodness, that he was playing Monopoly, and in the end, well, that's much of what he still does today. And then he had one reference point. By the way, I've always called this the choice paradox. If you have too many choices, you can sometimes have none. And sometimes it's just a gift to have that one reference point and then go ahead and live your life. And my goodness, he's proud of what he does in this business called the energy business, and he should be. And more of this remarkable story, not only of American energy, but of so many people who fuel the fuel business, the human beings that propel it. His story, all of their stories continue here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn on the story of energy. And by the way, that story about what happened in the whaling business, we also know what could have happened to our nation's forests, but for the advent of oil and now natural gas. Now let's continue with Tim Dunn and his story. The Biltmore is a house in the Asheville, North Carolina area. It's quite spectacular. You can pay whatever it is, 50 bucks or something, and go see it. It's a, an attraction now. But when it was built, it was built by one of the Vanderbilts, who was heir to a railroad fortune. And he built this house to receive guests. So it was a huge hospitality place. It's a 180,000 square foot house, if I remember correctly. 180,000 square feet. I mean, the average house is what? Depending on where you live, somewhere between 1,500 square feet and 4,000 square feet. This 180,000 square feet. Do you know offhand what the White House square footage is? 55,000. So the White House is 55,000 square feet. I mean, this is 180,000 square feet. It's gigantic. Built right around the 1900s, before oil and gas really kicked in. And I was walking around this house and I thought, wow, these guys had refrigeration, which was something brand new. And this refrigerator took up a whole room. I don't remember what it was powered by, probably coal and steam. But, you know, this giant room. And I thought, gosh, we now have many refrigerators in dorms and colleges. You know, you can, <laughs> there's refrigerators everywhere. Everybody has a refrigerator now. This isn't just for rich people anymore. And then we went up and looked at the rooms, and the rooms had buttons you could push and call the waiter. Wow, that was amazing back then. Well, you know, just about everybody has that opportunity now. In fact, 
in my town, which is not that large of a city, there's all-night drugstores. There's all-night restaurants. All I have to do is go get in my car and drive a few minutes, and there's people waiting there to feed me any time of the day, 24 hours a day. I can go get prescription 24 hours a day if I have something wrong, just like this mega, mega rich guy had. And I just kind of went through systematically looking at all his amazing benefits and even access to this property. If you want to get married at the Biltmore today, you can rent it. And I just realized that he wasn't the upper 1%. He was the upper one. You know, the richest guy in America or one of the handful of richest guys in America, most of the people I know today have a better life than he did. And if they want access to all this stuff, they don't have to pay all the immense freight that it takes to have it sitting there for them all the time. It's waiting there in the marketplace for them to use anytime they need it. Then they can stop paying for it and somebody else can pay for it. It's unbelievable what has happened and why. How has that happened? When Vanderbilt built this house, he kind of built it in the middle of nowhere. He had to build a railroad spur so people could get to it. Well, we don't have to do that today. We've got this amazing road system, all paved with petroleum, uh, asphalt. We've got this amazing transportation system powered by petroleum. We've got all these incredible materials that we can go and purchase, the vast majority of which is petroleum-based. We've got all this unbelievable medical technology, a vast proportion of which is either made from or powered by petroleum. And, and so that we have this petroleum-based lifestyle where average people, we have the ability to live like better than a king could. And that's really fueled by technology of petroleum. Now, there's another, of course, development that has made an enormous impact as well, and that is the trained electron, which is electricity. So between the petroleum, the internal combustion engine that burns petroleum, and the advances in electricity and the invention of the computer, you take those things combined, and the average person today has what it would have taken perhaps a hundred servants to be able to provide to you the to try to provide and still wouldn't have been able to. And we get it for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And that's all been that's all been made possible by these immense advances in petroleum and, and these other technologies. So today, if you look at the world economy, the average wage, the average wage, the median wage is what? What would you say? What would you guess? It's $1,500 a year, $1,500, okay? If you want to be in the upper 1% of earners in the world, upper 1%, how much money do you think you have to make? It's a little over $30,000 a year to be in the upper 1%, okay? And if you look at kind of the, what we call our poverty level in the United States, I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think that's at about the 85th percentile in the world. So if you are at the American poverty level, you have a higher income than 85% of the people in the world. And that 1500 is considerably higher than it, than it was. I mean, you have now, I think it's something on the order of like half the world now is not in subsistence farming, up from like 
80% was subsistence farming just a few decades ago. So the world is industrializing at an immensely rapid pace, which is why it's been able to hold 8 billion people. So if you go back and look in literature, there's been predictions of massive famine and overwhelming death and all these predictions that the world had too many people and it was going to destroy humanity because there's too many people. Well, that was based on a world where you don't have petroleum and you don't have internal combustion engines and you don't have computers and you don't have an electrification of the world because the productivity of humanity explodes when you have machines working for you. And so you have now 8 billion people that have the working power of 800 billion people. It's an, it's an immense multiplier if everyone had the capabilities that we have in America. So this abundance of energy, it is, it is a way to bring immense material prosperity to people. I'm a fan of uh, Fogel's works, and he wrote a book called The Fourth Great Awakening. He chronicles the impact that spiritual awakenings have had on America. And in each case, each awakening where, where people get the idea, and these have been Christian movements, so people get the idea that, wow, my life is defined by serving others. So how do we reach out and help as someone who's disadvantaged. And these, these movements have turned into a hospital movement, which started off as charities that the healthcare system is today mostly influenced by government, but it was really started out of philanthropy and charity and out of the churches. The temperance movement, of course, was a big movement to try to get fathers back in the house and out of the saloons. There were all kinds of movements. And that's why the full title of the book is the Fourth Great Awakening and the Rise of Egalitarianism in America. And, and by egalitarianism, he means the vast spreading of wealth and prosperity. And he ends the book with a prediction that in this Fourth Great Awakening, the material prosperity of Americans has grown to the point where, as, as we just talked about, the poor people are in the upper 15% and the average wage is above the top 1% in the world. So what is poverty now? And he predicts that the main poverty we have today is spiritual poverty, uh, meaning and purpose. You know, when you're really busy just trying to stay alive and getting out there and farming and hoping it rains, you know, pleading for the crop to come in, you, you don't have a lot of time to get depressed. But when you have 100 people working for you in the form of machines and you have a lot of time on your hands, it causes you to sit back and reflect, why am I here? What am I doing? What's, what's my purpose in life? Why do I matter? Does anybody accept me? What do I have to do to be accepted? What do I have to do to be approved? And if you don't have answers, if you don't have good answers to those questions, now that's where poverty comes from. And unfortunately, in America, our suicide rates on the rise even in the midst of this vast material prosperity. So material prosperity doesn't bring you happiness. But what it does bring you is the time to make choices to either make a great positive impact or to be self-destructive. And so we, we have this other challenge in the West and in America in particular. 
that we have to address, which is why I think Our American Stories is so important because people need to be inspired that there is a way forward for them where they can make choices to matter. And that's what we try and do each and every day here, tell stories. And in the end, let people step into those stories with their own life because life does matter and we are spiritual beings. And in the end, we got to address those deep spiritual questions. Who are we? What's our purpose? And we try to do that all the time here on this show. Tim Dunn's voice is just a beautiful one. And by the way, to enjoy more of his work, go to yellowballoons.net. You'll see and hear Tim's book. And it's all about how he grieved after his two-year-old granddaughter's death and also his terrific daily devotional. That's yellowballoons.net. Yellowballoons.net. Tim Dunn's story and so many stories like his in the energy business. And my goodness, this isn't the voice you'd expect to hear from an energy executive, is it? And that's what we like to do too, surprise you and go against the grain and stereotype and caricature. Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories.